You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. This is our sermon series, Sacred Habits. How practicing the way of Jesus helps you to flourish spiritually and stay grounded emotionally. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 4, 3 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear, since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. We can do better than that. Peace be with you. What a joy it is to be with you all this morning. Uh, pray that this morning is going well for you. If you are a first-time guest here at Sojourn, we say welcome. We are so glad that you are here, and we pray that a word would be spoken or a song song that will enrich your life in Jesus. My name is Pastor Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here, and today I have the opportunity to uh, kind of go through and explain uh, today's text. Uh, we are kicking off a new series, and the title of the series is Desecrate. The truth about sin. About a year ago, when we started planning out this series, we planned it out for uh, this Lenten season, um, which is uh, upon us, praying that the Lord would use these sermons uh, to bring renewal and revival. You know, the scripture says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, a sinner. But in today's culture, and unfortunately, even in the church, we have kind of changed those words to be, be merciful to me, O Lord, a miscalculator. And so this series is trying to help us to take a theology of sin out of the mothballs and to put it on full display Because it's only when we understand the depth of our sin that we can appreciate what Christ has come to do for us. It's only when we understand the seriousness of sin can we experience renewal. 
In Psalm chapter 32, the psalmist writes, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Joy is on the other side of us being able to acknowledge, own, turn from our sin while trusting in Jesus. And so uh, taking sin lightly and, and, and not looking at our own sin in the face um, will actually uh, deter us or take us away from the path of joy that God has called us to. So there's three quick ways I'm going to invite you to pray throughout this series. One is that through this series, the Lord would deepen our sense of the danger and the destructiveness of sin. Uh, Two, that the Lord would use this to deepen our vocabulary and understanding of sin. A third, that the Lord would use this to deepen our awareness and experience of Jesus' love for us and our love for him. And as we're going through this series, um, there are two resources that I'm leaning heavy on and um, that I've appreciated deeply. One is Cornelius Plantagus, not the way it's supposed to be. And then um, off of that, in the mid-90s, Tim Keller did a sermon series called Faces of Sin, which has been helpful as well. Well, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into today's text. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace towards us. Uh, This is a a subject that we don't often think of um, aiding to our our joy. (laughs) Uh, Some of us, man, we have voices in our head that is constantly condemning us, even though we are in Christ Jesus. And to think about preaching nine weeks on this subject makes us sad. Well, I pray, Father God, that you would surprise us and surprise those persons with your love, reminding them of your gospel of no condemnation, while simultaneously doing a work in their heart where they're able to see their sin, to repent and return from it while rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This past fall, we completed a series called uh, Sacred. And in the series, we looked at Genesis 1 through 3. and We explored how uh, the God of this universe created the world and it all was good and beautiful and how Adam and Eve was uh, God's kind of crowned jewel of creation. He uh, stamped them with his own image and created them in his image. And then we explored how sin came in and disrupted that, how Adam and Eve uh, uh, chose themselves over the glory of God. But we also stood amazed at how even though they sinned and fell short of the glory of God, how God continued to pursue them, how he covered them with uh, skins and, and covered their shame and pointed them to a day of redemption. Genesis 3.15, where the seed of a woman would crush the head of a serpent. And it is with that backdrop that we get to Genesis chapter 4, 1, as Moses is carefully crafting this uh, story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that would have been heard by Israel as they were in the wilderness preparing to cross over to Canaan. And there would have been this tension in uh, Israel's heart 
of, of who is going to be the seed, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so when you get to verse one of chapter four, you read these words, the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother. You read this and you're thinking to yourself, maybe Cain, the oldest brother, will be the one who will guilt the serpent back. Or maybe it's Abel. Maybe they will crush the serpent's head. And you find yourself hoping this, longing for this, and wanting it. But we'll see throughout today's text that that is going to be shortly lived. As the plot thickens, there's going to be another tension of, well, it can't be Cain because Cain is evil and it can't be Abel because Abel is dead. What is our hope? But even as we read this text, picking up on verse three, we see another question. And it's why did God regard Cain's sacrifice as illegitimate, but accept Abel's? The text says, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented it as an offering, presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. And so the question that we must pose is, what's going on here? And I believe that the answer here rests in the word first fruits. When Abel came before the Lord, he brought his, the first of his produce, so to speak, first of his produce. Um, he brought the first of his flock. Whereas that is absent from describing Abel's sacrifice. If you read the text, you pick up on these cues, you quickly see that this is an issue of wholehearted worship versus half-hearted worship. Later on, if you read in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you see that the author of Hebrews, when talking about uh, Abel's sacrifice, says that Abel gave a sacrifice in faith. The issue here was that when Abel came before the Lord, he came before the Lord with a heart of wholeheartedness and a heart of faithfulness to the Lord, whereas Cain came to God with a heart of, of apathy and half-heartedness. Cain's worship at the end of the day was about him. And what's interesting is, is that worship is not about us. As Marvadon says, God is the subject and the object of worship. Worship is about God. It's about us recognizing that he is high and lifted up. He is transcendent. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator. He is the one who is all powerful. He is the king and we are his subjects. But Cain came to God, as one author said, treating God as accessory and himself as the first cause. And this is the nature of sin. Sin is us essentially going outside of the the boundaries of God. It is an act, a motivation, an attitude, a thought, a word, a deed that displeases God. 
Here in the text, we see that sin is personified and is given the persona of a predator, of a vicious animal, a vicious animal that is waiting to attack. In verse 7, we read, God says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? In other words, come to me with a, a heart of faith that leads to good works. Won't you be accepted? This is what God says to Cain after he became furious and despondent. To be despondent simply means to, to uh, have one's uh, face fall, to be sad or uh, slothful. And then we read, the text says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so I just want to uh, pause and look at two movements from verse 7. I want us to kind of narrow in on the predatorial nature of sin and for us to see Sin as a predator that is crouching at the door, as a predator that desires to overtake us. So there's two things that we need to know about our sin. The first is this, our sin disguises itself as small. Our sin disguises itself as small. Sin, God said to Cain, is crouching. It is waiting. It is leaning back, looking for an opportunity to strike. When I was in college, I went back home, went to Michigan State University, came back to uh, Chicago area and uh, went to get a haircut. And I'll never forget, while in my barber's chair, a barber that I went to ever since I was smaller and just getting, uh, trying to get a crisp fade, um, that a guy walks in and this guy was very talkative. And suddenly he comes up to my barber and he starts talking to my barber. My barber talks to him. And then the guy kind of looks at me up and down. And, and I understand what's happening culturally. I don't feel threatened per se, but I, I do know that this is going to be a significant two to three minutes as he just starts uh, catting on me or what they call it today, roasting me, right? He just started looking, look, look at you, right? And he just starts going in, right? What are those? Looking at my shoes. And, and so I, I know that this is playful and that this isn't jest. But I also know if you don't, you know, stand up to a bully, this could actually grow and become something. So I'm thinking to myself, what should I do? Should I just sit here and take it? Should I say something back and be sarcastic? Should I stand up and, you know, literally stand up and stand up for myself? And that's what I chose to do. I looked at my barber. I gave him a little two fingers and I decided to stand up praying that this man was not going to escalate things. Right. <laughs> Because I didn't want no smoke. Amen. I was just trying to get a fade. <laughs> and so I stood up, and I'll never forget what the guy said to me. He said, he stood back, and he stood up, and he said, oh. He's like, my bad, brother. I don't, I, don't, I don't want any trouble, man. When you were sitting down and slouched over, I thought you were small. You got up. You got a little weight to you. Right? <laughs> he said, you made me second guess my, my whole approach here, Right? And that's the idea with, with our sin. It seems innocent at first glance. Seems harmless. Doesn't seem big. Doesn't seem like anything we should be concerned about. But it's crouching like a predator. 
waiting to pounce on us. The worst sins in your life look smaller to you than they actually are. I'm going to say that again. The worst sins in your life look smaller to you than they actually are. Like Cain, we can grow to think that we can domesticate our sin, but our sin is actually ready to domesticate us. We can think that we can control our sin, but our sin is waiting to control us. Your sin is not a cute little pet. It's a vicious predator. And we see this in his text with Cain. Cain's sin starts off as just apathy towards God. It's half-hearted worship. And then it moves to, to anger. He's furious at the God of this universe who just created everything by speaking a word. Surely he heard the story of, of Adam and Eve and, and how God was omnipotent and omniscient and all-knowing and how they tried to play a horrible game of hide-go-seek, but he knew where they were. Surely he knew who he was dealing with. And yet in this text, he allows his mortal, mutable, uh, temporary heart to come up against immortality, infinite, immutable, and powerful God. And not only is he furious at him, but his whole face changes and he becomes despondent towards God. And then he turns his attention away from God to his brother. And envy fills his heart. Now, it's possible that this wasn't the first time that he was envious of Abel. Um, Envy is something that just kind of grows. The more you think about it, the more you uh, enumerate over it, it becomes bigger and bigger and larger and larger. Perhaps even as a child, going back to when they were younger, he looked at his little brother with envy in his heart. Get Adam, my dad. Dad always favors Abel. They're always babying Abel. Why do I have to clean the dishes, right? It was just probably growing and growing. And he looked at it as a small thing, something that he could control, but it grew. It reminds me of Joseph's brothers and how they would end up treating Joseph and how they would probably start it off having little conversations and noticing that Joseph was their father's favorite and how it probably ended up doing small pranks against Joseph, but that sin was crouching in all of their hearts and it began, they began to collaborate together. And before you know it, they threw their brother in a pit, covered his coat in blood, took it to their father and lied to their father. How evil was that? And said that he was murdered. The first time one of them spoke out against Joseph around the kitchen table behind his back out of jealousy probably seemed really small to them. They probably never imagined that their wickedness would take over to the point of harming their own brother. Or think about Saul and how after David stood up against Goliath by faith and kills this, this giant, and Saul wakes up the next morning and he turns on hot uh, 94.7, and he hears a song coming on that says, David has killed his thousands. Saul has killed his thousands, but David 
has killed his 10,000s. How that seed was planted in his heart so much so that just a little time later, he would pick up a spear while David was playing his harp to bring peace to his king. Saul would throw the spear at him to kill him and then go on a years long journey of hunting him down like a lion hunts down a wallabies to kill him. Your sin may appear small, but it's just crouching. It's waiting for an opportunity to take you down. James chapter 1, verse 13, James says, speaking of temptation and sin, he writes, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Most of our desires are start off as good desires. And then that desire becomes an ultimate thing. It gets warped. It becomes evil, becomes about us. And then from there, we see two births happening. The first birth is that desire cross that line into sin. And then sin grows up. It goes from sitting in the chair to standing up to pouncing on us. It gives birth then to death. And my question simply is, are you pregnant today with envy, with jealousy, with lust, with greed? Be careful. Starve it. Put it to death. Because sin is crouching at the door and you can end up like Cain. Second point is not only is does our sin appear to be small, but we see that our sin desires just to swallow us whole. This is a sad, sad case of what sin can do when it is unleashed in our hearts. We see the progression going from just this envy to Cain calling his brother to go to the, out to the field with them. Verse 8, he says, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We all know what Cain intended and wanted to do in that field, don't we? We've seen enough mob movies. We know that when someone isolates another person and they have envy in their heart or trouble towards someone else in their heart, away from everyone else, that they're normally isolating them because they don't want anyone else to hear the person scream. They don't want anyone else to see the crime being committed. They want a chance, if that person breaks free, to be able to hunt them down. In the same way, Cain's sin has now grown up, and now it is literally producing death. And he takes them to the field, And he attacks his brother. And it doesn't have to be envy that leads to physical harm. It can be lusting after our hearts, after someone, or after a picture of someone that leads us to a field, leads us to a dark room. It could be greed. It could be lusting after someone's lifestyle on Instagram, noticing that they seem to be taking more vacations than you. And all of a sudden, that thing grows up and it becomes a a little lie here, a little lie there, a a little smudge of a detail here, a, a, a little taking here. 
Whatever the sin is, it grows. Jealousy, whenever that person's name is brought up and they're not around, it can become just a, a little smudging of the person's reputation, critiquing them, one-upping them. Our sin desires to go from just a, a thought or an idea to some action. And that action, listen to this, kills shalom. Shalom is peace. This idea of wholeness, and which produces beauty. All of our sin is a vandalism against shalom. Adam and Eve had shalom in the garden with God walking in his presence, enjoying him. And when they sinned, shalom was interrupted. Peace was vandalized. And the same is true here with Cain. He takes his innocent little brother who is trying to worship God wholeheartedly, who's given the first of his produce. He lures him out to the field. He attacks and he murders him. And shalom is vandalized. Seven times in the text, does the text emphasize that this is his brother? This is simply homicide. This is it's fratricide. This is the killing of his own blood. This is the one that he was raised with, ate meals with, played games with, and sin has now turned him in on himself. And the same is true for us. And then when God pursues, and that's what I love about God in this passage, is he's constantly pursuing Cain, even in his sin. What a God we serve. When Cain first commits sin and his face falls and he's filled with anger and fury. God graciously comes to him like, yo, bro, it's nothing personal. <laughs> it's just that you're, you're doing an act of worship, but it's not about me. It's about you. If you come the right way, we're all good. And then after Cain doesn't listen and this sin pounces on him, and even after he kills his brother, God comes to him, gives him an opportunity to confess and to come clean. But rather than confess and to come clean, he doubles down. He gets smart with God. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? Am I supposed to be babysitting? That's what sin does. Romans 1, it gets deeper and darker. Shears our conscience, shears our heart towards God. Makes God an accessory and makes us the first cause. Cornelius Plantinus powerfully writes, the person who reaches toward God and wants to please God gets, so to speak, stretched by this move and ennobled by the transcendence of its object. But the person who curves in on himself, who wants God's gifts without God, who wants to satisfy the desires of a dreaded heart, ends up sagging and, cont and contracting into a little wad. There is something in humility which, strangely enough, exalts the heart and something in pride which debates it. That's power. He 
says, listen, the person who comes to God and lives their life worshiping God, reaching towards this triune, transcending God to be shaped and to be formed by him, like we talked about in the last series with sacred habits, right? They are humbled and they're shaped and formed into character and they become lovers of truth, beauty, and goodness. But the person who, instead of reaching for transcendence, who becomes self-centered, they slowly start car- carving into themselves. And I like this wording. Their hearts become exalted and they become a little, a little wide. My question to you this morning is simple. Are you reaching towards this triune, transcendent God? Or are you slowly curving inward, making your life about you? Is your life slowly becoming about your glory, your wants, your needs, your name? Or is it about his glory, his kingdom, his will, and his name? Oh, that God would raise up a people here in Louisville, Kentucky who, yes, stumble forward and worship as imperfect beings, but by his grace, who are constantly seeking to bring the first fruits of their service to him, who are offering their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, knowing that this is their reasonable service. Oh, that God raise us up, soldier, in Midtown to be a people who believes that in his presence is the fullness of joy. Who believes that his presence can satisfy our deepest desires and our deepest needs. Who believes that he can shape us into a, a people who show forth his praise. Who believes that his love is able to conquer the darkest parts of our hearts, who believes that he can take the little that we give him and make much out of it. Which brings me to my point of application and it's simply attack sin or sin will attack you. Sean Owen says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Attack sin or it will attack you. Sin's not a cute little pet. It's a vicious predator. It looks small, but it's just crouching, waiting on an open door. And when it gets to you, its goal is not just to have a little fun with you and let you go. Its goal is to dominate your life, to turn you completely inward, to make you forget about the goodness of God, to make you forget about how loved you are, how treasured you are, how beautiful in his sight in Christ you are. 
So we have to attack it. And by attack it, I don't mean become navel gazers who are becoming, as Pastor Jarvis said last week, like sin police in others or in ourselves. No, by attack it, I mean we attack our sin by making God the subject and the object of our worship 24-7. We attack our sin by looking to him who overcame sin for us. If not, we all will become like Cain, slowly. And all of us know some Cain's right. We all know some Cain's, people who are always upset at how their lives are going. People who are always feeling that life is unfair always resenting others, always the victim, never the person who is wrong. And if we're all honest on any given day, any given moment of the day, that can be us too. And even as Christians, when that happens, what has happened is we have misplaced our identity. We have built our identity on something and around something other than Christ. We become Cain's when Jesus is not the one that we seek first, where God is not the one that we are truly worshiping. That's why the Ten Commandments start. The first three is all about loving God and having no idols before him. So what are you building your identity around? Any identity other than Jesus Christ is very fragile. It's like a balloon. And when something goes wrong, when that idol is not pleased or fed, it pops. We become angry. We become despondent. And we find ourselves in places we never thought we'd be. Hebrews 11 and 4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did by faith. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he's dead, he still speaks through his faith. Faith is what justifies us before God. Faith in him, not ourself, is what justifies us before God. As we abide in a triune God who is full of truth, beauty, and goodness, we become shaped by him and we begin to look like him. (laughs) We become shaped by the God in this passage who tenderly cared for Cain, even though he was in open rebellion. That's God's vision for your life. That's God's vision for this church, is that we would be shaped into the image of God, shaped into the image of Christ, so that when the canes of this world attack us, we can bless them. So that when things don't go our way, we can know that we have a heavenly Father who both humbles us and affirms us. 
And what enabled God to care for Cain, even though Cain was rebelling against him? What enables God to care for you and me, even though we rebel against him? It's that years later, one who is better than Abel would come. We read this in the passage. If you go home and read verses 17 through 25, we see that Cain's lineage just gets kind of worse. In fact, one of his grandsons, Lemuel, essentially boasts that he's going to be seven times more avengeful and worse than his grandfather. But then in verse 26, we see hope. Israel's reading this. Who will, who will make things right? Cain and his lineage is messed up. Abel is dead. And then we read, a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call out to the name of the Lord. Things in the way of Cain becomes the city of man. There's selfishness, self-centeredness, murder, multiplies. And then Adam and Eve, they have another child named Seth. And it's from the lineage of Seth that Judah would come. It's from the lineage of Seth that David would come. And it's from the lineage of Seth that Jesus would come. Jesus, like Cain, wandered in the wilderness for us though he was without sin. And Jesus, like Abel, would be killed by his brothers, though he never sinned. And Jesus is better than Abel because his sin cleanses us from all of our sin and unrighteousness. Jesus is the second Adam And he's better than Abel because as we take our sin to him, he mediates for us. He sits on the right-hand side of the Father so that when we sin, we don't have to hang our head in condemnation. We don't have to blame shift. We don't have to play games with God, with other people, or with ourselves. We can confess our sins with confidence knowing that we will be forgiven. We can go to our brothers Abel and say, I have sinned against you. We can go to co-workers and rather than hide the mistake, say, that actually was my fault. And we can do this with confidence because we serve a sovereign God who is the one who exalts, who gives promotions, who gives identity who gives life. So my encouragement to you, beloved, is to reach for the transcendent triune God and be shaped into his likeness rather than curving inward, making life about you and becoming a little wad. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.